Um, you can open up your Bible uh, in an app. You can have that or a tablet. Or you can raise your hand if you don't have either a paper copy or an app. Raise your hand and we'll bring you a house copy. You can call it that. And we're going to be in Leviticus, which is the third book of the Bible. The book of Leviticus, and we'll be in chapter 16 today. And in many ways, Leviticus is about access. It's about access into a place where you do not have access. You cannot be there. You're not supposed to be in there. And it reminds me of maybe, I don't know if this is just uh, mainly like Puerto Rican households, but you'd go visit like your great aunt's house or your grandmother's house, and there's a room and you can't be in there. I don't know why an entire room is dedicated to nothingness, but you can't be in there and everything's covered in plastic, the couch is covered in plastic, the cushions are covered in plastic, there's a plastic runner on, on the floor, everything's plastic, and uh, if you made the mistake of taking a nap on that couch by sneaking in there in the summertime, uh, you, you come off like Velcro, right, uh, coming off that, that plastic couch. Um, it's the carpet you're not supposed to step on. It's the pillows you're not supposed to use. Uh, and I guess if a special enough guest came over one day, then they would be able to drink from that china and sit on that pillow, but uh, that special person wasn't you. It's access. You get to see the place from afar. You get to know that there's a room there, but you can't go in there. Maybe you don't care because it's just a room. but There was some special aura to it just, the, just by virtue of the fact that you can't be in there. Uh, almost tempted you to want to go in there. I think about our trip to Valley Forge not too long ago when we got to go into George Washington's headquarters and the kids are asking, like, it's actually original. And they said, well, this, see this railing, this banister? That's original. It's never been stained. It's never been varnished. It's never been retouched, replaced. It's as is. Wait a minute, so George Washington, when he climbed up these stairs, he touched that rail? Yeah, like who else touched that rail? Well, started naming some people that touched that rail, that original rail. Right? And it's kind of awesome to think about that somebody that special touched that thing and I, I get to touch it? They're like, go ahead. It's not encased in glass. It's not behind some bulletproof plexiglass. It's, it's right there for you to touch. Another example might be a surgery room and you think about the nurses and the doctors that have to uh, get their scrubs on, and they, they have to literally scrub their arms and their hands, and anybody just can't go into the surgery room. If one germ, one contaminant uh, makes its way into uh, the patient, um, that, that can cause all kinds of problems, so it has to be sealed away from all contamination. Those kind of concepts, if you combine them all, you begin to start thinking a little bit about this concept of God's sacred presence, which is right off the bat when you start reading the Bible, this is what we're gunning for. This is what we've lost, is access into God's presence. Right? Adam and Eve would walk with God in the garden, and then when they sinned, what was the punishment? Get out. And a big 
door, uh, sign on the door handle of the garden that said, do not enter. My room, get out. A concept we learn early on, especially when you grow up with siblings. One of the first things you learn how to construct is a sign on your door that says, do not enter, keep out. Tell on, your, tell on them by going to your parents and saying they were in my room, they shouldn't have been in my room. This concept of sacred presence that's, that's the concept that opens up in the pages of Scripture. God creates this garden. What's special about the garden is not how pretty it is. It's pretty because He's there and He's the creator of it. And then when sin enters the picture, they're not allowed to be there. And so after that, it's just roaming and, and people wandering around. There's altars built in particular places, but it's not until you get to Exodus when He rescues them out of Egypt and tells them, I'm going to tabernacle among you. I'm going to dwell among you. But for me to be with you, you can't just waltz in here and do whatever you want. For you to be in my presence, sin has to be dealt with. And what happened in the garden wasn't totally fixed. You need access to God, but God needs to do something about what impedes your access. And what impedes access is sin. So join me at the top of Leviticus chapter 16 where we're reminded of that fact. Leviticus chapter 16. Let's just look at the first two verses. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near. So there's the concept. Coming into God's presence, approaching God. He's present there and they're coming to him. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. In other words, that cloud represents my presence. That mercy seat represents my, uh, my being there. Other places in scripture, uh, Psalm 132, 1 uh, uh, Chronicles 28 the ark is referred to as God's footstool. It's this 44-inch by 26-inch box with a golden lid on top. And if you've ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, not bad, right? That gold cover with the angels on either side of it, their wings touching in the front of it. And it's God's footstool. It's his presence. That's where God is. And the cloud over that mercy seat, uh, so-called, represents God's being there and God saying, remember when Adab and, and, and Abihu drew near and they drew near with sin? They died. And so make sure you tell Aaron that you can't just waltz in here, you will die. There's a way to do it and there's a when. And so it's again with the theme that God wants us to approach him he wants to create a way for us to be in his presence. That's why he created us in the first place. But we can't be in God's presence because sin impedes it. That's what happened to Aaron's oldest two sons. They went without taking care of that impediment and they died. So it's a very serious thing to be in the holy presence of God. This isn't grandma's living room. It's, it's life and death. Maybe when you were a kid, you thought it was life and death if, if she caught you. But the seriousness and the weightiness of this, it's, if you're reading through this in your Bible time, don't just, just, don't just fly through chapters 1 through 15. 
Spend time in 1 through 15. The grimy, gritty, dirty details of how uncleanness and transgressions and iniquities impede our access to God. Leviticus wants to kind of make you live there a little bit. In fact, chapters 1 through 15 deal with ritual impurities and the sacrifices that are needed for access, and then 17 through the rest of the book deal with, okay, now that that's been taken care of, how are you supposed to live? So this chapter comes right kind of in the middle of Leviticus, 15 chapters of feeling kind of the weight of the law, and you have to be clean, and you have to do these rituals, and it's, it's a lot. And then there's a glimmer of hope in chapter 16, because chapter 16 explains how access is secured. So we'll read through verse 10. In verse 3 he says, But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. You can't come in, even with the priestly garments, you can't come in with those. It's a separate set of garments to come into the holy place behind the curtain. This is the most inner sanctuary of the tabernacle. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. Verse 5, And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Now how is access going to be secured? Well, here's how, here's how it's going to be secured, and here's why there's two male goats. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the goats. That's kind of like an ancient form of rolling dice. Which goat is going to be used for which? One lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. We'll cover that in a moment. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel, shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement for it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. So what we see here is an overview of this process that all of chapter 16 is going to be about. And what God is saying is, tell Aaron he can't come in. That's how the chapter starts. Tell Aaron he can't come in. Remember his two sons, they died. If Aaron comes in, he's going to die. Unless he comes like this. And he's got to bring the bull, and he's got to bring the two goats, etc., etc. Now that overview discusses what it takes to gain access to God. Why is it necessary, we ask, after 15 chapters of all kinds of sacrifices? If you've got this problem, do this sacrifice. This problem, do that sacrifice. Why do we need this particular sacrifice? So let's do something a little different. Let's skip to the end. We're going to read 29 to 34, which kind of gives the conclusion. And then we'll go to the, uh, the middle portion last. He kind of helps them understand why this is necessary. Verse 29, this whole act with the two goats and, and everything. It shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. So once a year, you're going to do this. This is a once a year thing. 
And at, when this time rolls around and the sacrifice is going to happen, you're going to afflict yourselves. Most, most scholars think that means uh, fasting, prayer, maybe giving up luxuries. It is the precursor to what we now know as Lent. And do no work. Either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. Anyone who's in your presence, anyone who's here, needs to do this. Verse 30, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. Interesting, forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And, he shall, and this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. If you'll notice that presence theme is emphasized heavily again, verse 33. What is he making atonement for? The people? The priest? Well, yes, but what else? He makes atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he makes atonement for the tent of meeting, and he makes atonement for the altar, and he makes atonement for the priests and all the people of the assembly. But it's this idea, again, of covering the holy space. This space that represents my dwelling with my people has to be atoned space. Otherwise, we, we can't have this. And so it's securing access to God. And then verse 31 and 34 tell us why this is necessary once a year. Well, he said, verse 30, on this day, atonement is made to cleanse you, and you shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. See, the prior sacrifices were this one for that, do this one for that one. This one is for everything. This covers everything all year. Then that's repeated again, verse 33, that he shall make atonement for all the priests, for the priests, and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. So they come and they afflict themselves. They're fasting, they're praying, they're giving maybe luxuries up so that they can focus on the fact that all of their sacrifices all year long didn't cover everything. They might have kept the good log. They pulled out their Moleskine journal and they're like, look, I sinned and then I, co- and then I sinned and then I covered it. And God is saying, that's not enough. We need a once a year ritual to make sure we cover everything, the things that you forgot to log. The things that you didn't forget, but you didn't think that, well, that was worthy of logging. A sacrifice is necessary to cover everything because we vacillate between two extremes. Cheap grace and spiritual OCD. What's cheap grace? Well, cheap grace is the person who says, minimizes sin and goes, yeah, grace covers that. Yeah, I sin, but you know, whatever, God's grace covers it. Grace is cheapened. Because sin isn't taken seriously. and So they miss out on the fact that this is a weighty issue. Well, the other end of the spectrum would be, I'm just calling it spiritual OCD. What is OCD? Obsessive compulsive disorder. You have 
in your mind certain obsessions, and the way that you cope with those mental obsessions is physical compulsive behaviors, right? I mean, I'm not an expert. I just learned this from, like, watching Monk. Um, <laughs> but, but, but think about if you took the book of Leviticus seriously, where it calls you out on sin, unintentional sin, as well as intentional sin, calls you out on not sin, but just general uncleanness. What do you mean? How am I unclean if I didn't specifically sin? Yeah, because you're sinful. You're just kind of dirty. You don't belong in there. You can't have access to God. And then you start thinking about, wait a minute, wait a minute. How many sins do I really do? If we really took things logically to their end, we would all be a little bit OCD. When you look at that sanitizer bottle that you think has got your back, and you read the the cover, the sticker on it, and it says 99.9% of germs killed, if you just linger there for a minute and you're like, well, what, what's the one germ that isn't killed? I mean, if I wipe, wipe the doorknob three different times, is there a chance that that one percentile like, is still lingering there? How thorough are we with the wiping and the cleaning? You might be borderline OCD like me, where if you use a public washroom, I've got the napkins and I'm using my foot to kick things open, Right? And then to exit the bathroom, I grab a clean napkin, and I'm touching the handle with that. And then I hold it with my hand, and if I look for garbage, there isn't one, I just throw it. I'm like, that's what you get for not putting a garbage there for me? <laughs> but how about when I exit the restaurant? How about that handle? The same dirty person that I protected myself from inside the bathroom also exited this, the restaurant. What about that handle? They have the forks sitting there in buckets open. Right? What about those forks? Dust, somebody coughed, one on the fork. Are they individually wrapped? Who individually wrapped them? Do I get to inspect the factory? Is there a sticker on the wrapper that says which factory this was? Who wrapped these forks? Is it clean in there? If you let it bother you, we would all go nuts thinking about germs. But I think that's our problem. Leviticus is bothersome because we don't want to start thinking about how pervasive, how invasive sin actually is. This is the problem with the Catholic confession booth. And if you think I'm just going to sit up here and pick on Catholics, you're wrong. Because I think there are evangelical Christians that are practical Catholics. The confession booth is based on the, the, the doctrine of penance, meaning... You have to continually regain God's grace by confessing the particular sins that cause you to lose that grace. So you're folded into the covenant, the new covenant with Jesus Christ, but oops, you sinned. Well, that has to be taken care of. And so you come once a week, once a month, whatever it might be, and you sit at the booth and you open the little drawer or whatever the thing is. I mean, I've never actually done it. And the priest is going to ask you, okay, what, what sins have you committed? And you've got to go down memory lane and cover them. Did you cover them all? Did you get 99.9% of them? What about that leftover germ? See, God saw this coming. There's no way that everyone is going to cover every skin rash, that everyone's going to cover every unclean thing that they touched. What if a corpse touched something and they didn't see it happen and then they touched it? They're unclean, but they don't even know it. 
There's so many different reasons why they can't have access to God. They needed a one year, once a year, day of atonement to handle all the things that you could never think of, that you could never log, no matter how many journals you kept. It covers it all. So whether you're the cheap grace person and need to realize that there's more that needs to be covered and that it's more serious than you thought it was, or if you're the spiritual OCD person and you realize rightly that no amount of nightly confession times can cover everything. So if at the end of each day you pray to the Lord and you say, God, forgive me of this and please forgive me of that and please forgive me of that, you might be stuck on a treadmill that you're not supposed to be stuck on. Because if that were true, and we needed to constantly regain grace that we've lost because we've sinned today or this morning or last week, none of us have any hope at all. Because we'll never cover all of it. No matter how much we try to sanitize it, there's always that leftover percentage. So God instituted this particular sacrifice. He made it a statute forever because this is always going to be how we have access to God. And we cannot have access to God if we don't get this taken care of. And it's never taken care of unless there's something that takes care of all of it completely. So he needs to totally remove sin so that we can get total access to him. God has never established something where you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. There has to be something that allows continual access. And that's this particular sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. So what we'll do here, we'll read verses 11 through 28. I'll pause at certain spots for commentary here and there. And then we'll think about its implications for us. Starting at verse 11. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself. So the first move is to cover himself. He's the one that has to go in there. He doesn't want to die. And shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord. And two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil. So this is the once a year time where the high priest goes behind the sanctuary curtain. And he puts the incense, verse 13, on the fire before the Lord, and the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. He needs the cloud of incense to be sort of literally a smoke screen so that he doesn't look at the cover. You know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, they take the cover off and they die. This is, no, 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 no. If you just look at the cover, you're dead. He needs, he needs the incense smoke to guard it. Verse 14, and he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. It's debatable whether that's to be referred to as a mercy seat it's sort of the traditional way of serving, uh, referring to that cover of the ark. Uh, but many scholars make the argument that a better word than mercy seat would be the propitiatory. Uh, the, the object that provides propitiation or that demands propitiation. And propitiation is just a fancy word for satisfaction. God is wrathful and his wrath needs to be appeased. And many liberal Christians, I suppose, deny the fact that uh, the purpose of sacrifices to appease God's wrath, 
Um, I would say the antidote to that is read the Bible. So verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. It's not because the mercy seat or the propitiatory or the ark is not holy. It's because of unholy presence being next to it. It needs to be covered. Again, covering that sacred space so that we can have access. Verse 16, thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people, not the uncleanness of the holy place, the uncleanness of the people of Israel, and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanliness. If you want to circle one verse that is the key verse of the entire chapter, that's it, verse 16. God's presence and their sin. How how are the two reconciled? Well, the atonement. Verse 17, no one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place. It's got to be just the high priest until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Now he's covering the altar. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. Verse 20. When he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. Remember, there's two goats. One gets killed, one gets to live. You remember the two birds. One gets killed and the other one gets to go free. Same concept here. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. That's laying it on thick. So he's putting both his hands on the goat, and he's in a sense, symbolically, he is transferring all of their sins, all of their iniquities, all of their transgressions to the goat. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who was in readiness. Some older translations say that by the man who was fit. Now, there's someone who can take this thing way out there and come back and survive. Verse 22, the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So one goat's death represents the death that has to happen so that we can have life. But God is saying, that's not all of what it's about. There also has to be a a taking away of the sin. So you're going to take another goat, take all their sin, put it on top of that goat, and send the goat away. So this is the original scapegoat. If you ever wonder where that phrase came from, Leviticus 16, that's where it came from. The goat escapes with all of your sins. He's a scapegoat. He didn't do it, but everyone's going to put the blame on that goat. So the goat goes away into the wilderness. I mean, don't imagine it's clicking its heels and it's going to live a happy life. What do you think is going to happen to a goat by itself as defenses out there? But the point is it just goes away. It's gone. What happened to that goat? I don't know. It's gone forever. We took a really fit dude and he hiked it, you know, really far. Verse 23, then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments and he put, that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. 
and he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward he may come into the camp. So there's debate about what Azazel is. Some people think it's uh, a mythological demon uh, in, in Jewish mythology. Well, it is in Jewish mythology, but the Bible doesn't quite bear that out. And the Bible doesn't quite bear out the idea that we have to bring a sacrifice to a demon as if Satan or demons had ownership over uh, what we're supposed to do for atonement. So I don't think that's it. Some people think it's a place that we don't know of anymore, but the place where they would take the goat, we don't know. Uh, probably it is an ancient way of just saying scapegoat. It is the goat that goes away. And so I don't want to take a whole lot of time to get into the Hebrew there, but those are some of the ideas. You don't need to know what the word means to see the concept. They take this goat, it goes away, and then after it goes away, they still have to wash up from the ritual. And what do they do with their clothes, and what do they do with all these dead animals that had their blood spilled out? Verse 27, And for the bull for the sin offering and the goat, for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, they shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire, and he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And so what we see here is taking those sacrifices, taking those bulls and taking those goats, where their blood was spilled out, and even they are taken outside of the camp, outside of God's presence, and burned up over there. It's gone. It's taken out, and it's taken away for total removal of sin. And church, there's so many ways that this connects to Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews reminds us in chapter 13 that this The reason why Jesus suffered and died outside of the city gates of Jerusalem is to fulfill Leviticus 16 where the sacrifices were burned outside of the gate. And that is how Jesus Christ has handled sin for us by taking outside of the presence with God so that this doesn't impede access to God's presence. You remember the veil tore, the curtain tore, Uh, because Jesus is the perfect high priest, so he fulfills the role of the high priest. He fulfills the role of the goat that is killed. He fulfills the role of the animals that are burned outside the camp. He fulfills the role of the goat that takes the burden of sin away from camp. So this is actually a very simple message. This is actually not complicated, but it is one that if we're not careful, our hearts won't wrap around it and we'll be stuck in either a place of cheapening grace or a place of spiritual paranoia, OCD, where we don't feel like everything has really been taken care of. Now, if you commit a sin, should you feel guilty? Yeah. That was bad. You shouldn't have done it. But there's a difference between recognizing where you're guilty and confessing that and and, and holding to assurance of forgiveness and just being constantly stuck under an obsession with guilt. There's a difference there. You think about the OCD person, everything has to be perfectly arranged. Everything has to be facing the same way. Peas can't touch my meat, right? It's arrangement. That is is a spiritual reality that Leviticus is calling us to. 
this shouldn't touch this, but it always touches. It always touches because we're constantly messing up. Our lives are a mess. So there's a real sense in which the book of Leviticus wants to get you to that OCD point and then relieve you of it. It wants you to take seriously how pervasive sin is, and then it wants to give you the release. It wants to give you the hope, and the hope is not you finally perfectly arranged the cabinets. The hope is not you finally found the sanitizing wipe that kills 100% of germs. The hope is not if you wipe it just one more time, it finally is totally clear. The hope can't be anything that you produce, or you'll always be stuck wiping, cleaning, covering up, thinking about, oh my goodness, I wiped that handle, that I wiped the other handle. You'll never be free of it. So, are there past sins that you're still trying to wipe? Are there nagging failures in your life that you're still trying to clean? You're still trying to mop it up. You need to be free of it. But you can't be free of it unless you understand atonement. And you can't understand atonement unless you connect it to Jesus Christ, that he took all of it, not some of it. He didn't take the palatable sins, and then the really bad sins, look, that just can't all fit on the head of Jesus Christ. He bears it on his shoulders. It's nailed to the cross outside of the city gate. He takes it forever away. And The reason why this passage says it's a statute forever is not because we're supposed to continually bring bulls and goats before the Lord. The author of Hebrews tells us those bulls and goats could never accomplish what Jesus Christ accomplished. It's a statute forever because we always recognize the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and that will be forever. People ask, am I going to remember sins in heaven? Of course you are. If you didn't remember sins in heaven, you'd be worshiping the bloody lamb and going, I don't get it. Why, did he, why was he killed? That wouldn't make any sense. If we're going to worship the lamb, casting our crowns before him, going, you deserve all honor, you deserve all grace, you deserve all praise, because everything I did, every single failure, every single detail and minutia of the ways in which I was unclean, you took care of it forever. We will be grateful for that fact. What's hard for us to imagine is that we'll be in the new earth forever remembering our sins but not being underneath the weight of the condemnation of those sins. Are we guilty of sin? Yes. Are we condemned for them? Not if you're in Jesus Christ. He doesn't save you partway. He doesn't take it halfway out of the city. It's gone forever as far as the east is from the west to the depths of the ocean. You will never bear that weight Again, be free of it. You can only be free of it if you come to Christ. That's our hope for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to you for providing the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and that he wasn't just killed and then stayed dead, but he rose again in victory over death because sin is completely handled and because sin is totally taken care of, we have total access to you. Help us to take advantage of that in prayer. Help us to long for the day where we are physically in your total presence. We long for it. God, for those of us wrestling with sin and failures and iniquities and transgressions, those of us that are uh, 
tempted to obsess over the ones that we missed, the ones that we can't even think of, the ones that we can think of, but we're not even sure that they're wrong. God, we thank you that you cover even our ignorance, that you cover even our unintentional sins, and the sins that don't even register on our radar, you took care of. Help us to live free from condemnation, not because we don't care about sin, but because we do. And we go to the cross to see it handled. We thank you for that assurance. And for anyone in here this morning who does not cling by faith to that assurance alone and wholly, we pray that you would bring them to that place and rescue them from the cheap grace or the spiritual paranoia so they can find rest finally in Jesus Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.